You're not from here, are you? I wonder if you've heard that question asked before in your life at some point. Uh, you're not from this part of the town, are you? Pam could probably know she's been across the country. She's probably heard that quite a bit. Uh, you're not from here, are you? You often comes when people visibly or they audibly recognize something about you, right? And they can tell uh, your true citizenship is not here. You belong somewhere else. You're just, you're lost apparently, right? Uh, Christianity is a similar thing, that it, it forms a, a peculiar people. As Christians, we're, we're, we're different, right? We're, we don't belong in the world that we live in. We're, we're much different than the world, right? Uh, we've heard the phrase from our Lord Jesus that we are in the world, but we're not of this world, right? We're just, we're peculiar people. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So Peter's just calling Christians, uh, he calls them sojourners and exiles. Some Bibles use the word strangers and aliens. So Christians, though you live in the world, uh, you are an alien here. You are, you're a stranger here, right? You don't act like the world that pursues their passions. You pursue Christ. We're much different, right? It is then that as Christians, we are to be regarded uh, in how we live, talk, and just our existence is to be different than that of the world, right? We're supposed to be from another world. We're, we're, we're from Narnia, you could say, living on this earth, right? We're much different than everybody else here. And if you know me very well, you know I'm also very strange. Maybe you're very strange. We don't mean strange that. We mean biblically different, right? We mean you just don't fit in here. There's just something about you in the world that just doesn't work, right? Uh, in my favorite book, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, which I'm going to brief a brief portion in just a second. Uh, there's a so this is the member. This is the uh, most high-selling book outside the Bible, translated. I don't know how many languages. So many languages. Please get it. Pilgrim's Progress. If you don't have it. Please go buy it and read it this week. Uh, start reading it this week. Uh, but Christian and his friend Faithful are passing through Vanity Fair. If you're wondering where the world gets their good names for magazines from, it is always from Christian. They just hijack everything. But Vanity Fair. Uh, uh, John Bunyan, the author, describes Vanity Fair as a year-round market. And all that happens and all that is sold there occupies what you'd probably imagine. Well, it's, it's vanity. It's things that don't really matter that are wasting away, right? Maybe you're thinking, okay, uh, well, what exactly is vanity? What is sold in the world? So remember, this is an allegory. It's supposed to be a picture of reality, right? So he's telling a story. So the world that we live in is supposed to be like Vanity Fair. So what does John Bunyan say is sold here in Vanity Fair? This is what he says. This merchandise consists of houses, lands, trades, places, honors, positions, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts, such as prostitutes, lewd entertainment, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. Moreover, at this fair can always be seen juggling, cheats, games, fools, apes, knaves, and rogues, and that of every kind. Also to be seen, and at no charge, are thefts, murders, adulteries, and false witnesses who cause death with their lies. So you can say, as you can tell, the entire world is just described in a paragraph. Literally everything you see, John Bunyan says, that is Vanity Fair. And he describes that there's many streets in Vanity Fair, like uh, Britain Row, Spanish Row, Roman Row. German row, meaning all languages participate in Vanity Fair, right? So what that means is Christian and faithful passing through this fair, they don't belong. And what happens is as they pass through, all the people in this fair are extremely angry at them. 
They see them and they just get livid looking at these, and all they're doing is walking through. Maybe you're wondering, why are they so mad? They're just literally walking through this fair. Well, John Bunyan gives you three reasons, and I didn't, um, I'm not going to read them. I'll just tell them what they are. Number one, these, these pilgrims, these Christians, they dress differently. We don't like that. We don't like how they dress. We don't like how they look. Number two, their speech. Uh, it's described as the language of Canaan, or you could say the language of the promised land. They speak a heavenly speech. We don't like that either. And number three, quote, they put no value on the fair's goods. They did not even enjoy looking at them. And when the merchants called out to them to buy, the pilgrims would put their fingers in their ears, and they would turn and say this, turn away my eyes from worthless things. That's, some, that's from Psalm 119. And they looked upward, saying that their trade and traffic was in heaven. Now, I wonder, friends, this morning, if your Christianity stands out with, from the world, or does it blend in? So Christians are called to be salt of the earth, right? But Jesus says, if salt has lost its saltiness, he says, well, what is it good for? Being thrown on the dirt, being trampled underfoot. So our Christianity must not be infused with vanity fair. We must be much different from the world. If you remember, if you remember where we are in Philippians, Paul, if you recall, is writing this letter in jail. And Paul is just in love with the gospel. All he wants is Christ first, whether in jail, whether to live as Christ, to die as gain. Right? He knows if I'm staying here or getting out, I'm going to make Jesus look really, really big. That's all Paul wants to do. right? And last week we talked about there's four essential ingredients to have a fruitful life. If you look at verse 22 through 26, Paul tells us to have a, that if he's going to stay, he's going to have a fruitful life. Today, though, Paul's going to give us a little bit different. So what is, so that's a fruitful life, but what does it look like? What does a, a citizen of heaven look like on earth? What does a Christian look like? Well, it's very simple. Christian living is very weighty and it's very costly and it's very precious. And I hope you'll see that this morning. I want to give you four descriptions for us to know how to live as a worthy citizen of heaven on earth. So we are pilgrims passing through Vanity Fair. How can we stand out? What's it look like to stand out? So we're going to look at here. Number one, we have a high conduct. Look at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So first aspect, Paul says that we are, our, our conduct should be worthy of the gospel, Right? And I think just reading this verse, it's both tremendous, like, wow, what a beautiful text. But also, it's very terrifying, right? Your manner of life should be worthy of the gospel. I mean, just let that sit for just a second. The way you live should make the gospel go, yeah, it makes sense why he, it makes sense that he's a believer. It's almost impossible to think that way. The Philippians must have the gospel first. Their, their conduct in life is to be gospel-shaped, Right? Not informed by the world, but formed by the good news of Christ. So your life is, is to be fitting. It's supposed to be hand in glove. You think of the good news of Christ, that's the glove. Your hand should fit. I mean, it should be hand in glove. That's a big statement, isn't it? That's a weighty call. The word here refers to putting your life on a scale. So get your life, get this week that you just had, or maybe two weeks ago, or the whole month or the whole year, put it on a scale, put the gospel on the other side, how does it weigh? I mean, that's just a stunning statement. And Paul says, it should be that way. It should equal out, right? If you remember, uh, the city of Philippi is a Roman colony. 
In Acts chapter 16, verse 12, we spoke about this weeks ago when, when we hit the first two verses. But Philippi was a Roman colony, meaning this, that Philippi was not in Rome. They weren't actually in Rome. They were located hundreds of miles away from Rome. But they were a Roman colony. So they, they enjoyed all the benefits that you would have if you were a Roman. You were not on Roman soil, but you were a Rome away from Rome. So if you think of going to like another country and you buy a little mini Eiffel Tower, right? It's not really it, but it represents the Eiffel Tower. Well, Philippi isn't in Rome. But everything do, they do is going to be Roman. Does that make sense? So therefore, they have Roman law, Roman culture, Roman everything. In short, they were loyal to another law while they lived in Philippi, right? I don't care what Philippi says. We're doing what Rome says. That's what everyone in Philippi understood. And what Paul says here, therefore, is to uh, this word that your Bible probably has the phrase, maybe let your manner of life be worthy, let your conduct be worthy. That's one word that has that literally means to live as a citizen. So think what Paul is saying. If Philippi is a Rome away from Rome, but they're going to act Roman in Philippi, Paul is saying, while you're in Philippi, act like a Christian. Your life should be citizen-like of the gospel while you're in Philippi. So you're not in heaven, but you should live like you're in heaven on earth. The Philippian Christians were to be heavenly citizens on earthly soil, right? Because holiness is to the nature of a Christian as heat is to the nature of fire. So brothers, let me ask you this morning. Do you live as a citizen of heaven here on earth? Is your manner of life worthy of the gospel? This is a tremendous charge just to even fathom that sentence. Christians by nature do not fit in with the world. We We are set apart. We're not supposed to fit in. That's kind of the point. Second aspect is wherever you go. Let's look at verse 27 again. So live a life worthy of the gospel. And Paul says this, so that whether I come and see you, uh, so whether I'm out of prison and I come see you or I'm absent and I can't come, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. So Paul's saying, whether I come or whether I go, I at least want to see and know that you're being faithful as a believer. So the Philippians then are to be consistent. Do you hear that? So Paul's saying, if I'm there, I want you to have a life worthy of the gospel. If I don't come, I want to hear that you are living a life worthy of the gospel. So Paul's saying, come or go, be consistent as a believer, right? Because true converts, friends, do not have their lives in compartments, right? Here's this life. Here's my home life. Here's my work life. Here's my whatever life. And then Christianity is on Sunday morning. And after that, I go back to whatever I'm doing. There's no, there's no flooding. They're all in the little compartment. The Bible says true converts don't have that. It's all of Christ for all of life. And if Paul comes, he expects to see their holy conduct. He assumes if he stays, I'll hear about it, right? It's been said before that there are only four gospel accounts, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Christians should really be a fifth gospel. Your life should testify to Christ so much as if I've never read a Bible, but I could read your life, and that's a Christian right there. So how do you do that? Well, it's very simple, but very, very difficult. The secret of living a holy life is having a living heart. You need to be a believer. It's very simple, right? All outward attempts of reviving our dead heart are like putting makeup on a dead body, right? If we're going to pretend to be a believer, I mean, guys, I'll be honest, I don't like clowns. They freak me out. Do you want to know why? Because they're creepy. They're just creepy. 
The makeup just makes him look creepier. It doesn't make him look more alive. It makes him look more scary. Well, the Bible says that just per- putting moral constraints, moral things, is like just spraying perfume on something that's already dead. Just, I mean, guys, I don't, I don't like the smell of my children's diapers. If I don't spray perfume, I just get rid of them, right? It doesn't change what it is. And the Bible says very clearly that there's not enough moral makeup that can beautify a dead heart spiritually. Christians do not serve two masters, they serve one. They don't live two lives, they live one. They don't have two minds, they don't have two tongues, they have one. Therefore, the only person a double life really fools is the Lord, isn't it? We may be fooled by it, but the Lord is not fooled. He's not impressed, right? He knows. So friends, is your conduct here on Sunday morning different than your conduct there outside the church? Maybe a better way to put it, how are you at home? How do you act at home when no one's watching? See, a, a, a new heart, there's almost no distinction. That's what Paul is getting at here. Whether I come or go, I'm going to hear or see it. And that happens only by seeing something great, right? We just read Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Well, after Isaiah realizes, whoa, I'm sinful, I've seen the king, the Lord of hosts, the Lord sends a seraphim to get a coal from the altar and he touches it on his tongue, his, his lips, and it says your sin is, your guilt is taken away, your sins are atoned for. So when you see God's holiness, you see your sinful, just like Isaiah did. And what removes your guilt must come from God. It must be God's sacrifice. Well, friends, to be truly transformed from the inside out, it's not by trying hard on the outside. It's by being changed on the inside. And Jesus Christ is that change. When you see Christ by faith, that's what changes the heart, right? It's not just mustering up courage or saying, I'm going to be better. That's just outward dressing. It doesn't change anything, right? The Lamb of God, the true offering of God, changes sinners. <clears throat> Isaiah 45, verse 22 says this, Turn to me and be saved, all ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. So friends, when we turn to Christ in faith, our hearts are transformed by grace. Do you see that? And the good news is God is so rich in mercy that he offers one life to cover up your double life. So if you have a double life this morning, Jesus Christ can give you his perfect life to remove and amend for your double life. It can be just removed just like that, and his perfect life can be created to you by faith. If you've not done that, today is the day to trust in Christ. And now as a believer, your life is married to Jesus. You are not your own. Your life is hidden with Christ. So friends, I say that because that is the solution. That's how you live a worthy life. Well, Kale, I don't feel worthy. You're probably not because the Bible says that we're not. But you live a worthy life at home or abroad by being united to Christ by faith and trusting in him daily. It really is that simple. If Christ has resurrected and your heart has been raised to life, you're going to walk in newness of life. It's the beauty of Christ that creates our behavior for Christ. Do you see that? It's not behaving and then becoming. It's you become born again and then you behave like you're born again. It's what you see that captivates you. One final sentence, then we'll go into our second point. This is my favorite quote outside the Bible of all time. Day or night, doesn't matter. It's changed my life. I want you to hear it. It's very simple. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. 
That's the cure, isn't it? Take ten looks at Christ. So our conduct, and number two, Paul says that we have a holy community. So first we have a conduct, that's holy, or a high calling rather. Now we have a holy community. So look at verse 27 again. And Paul's going to give us two stances, a defensive position and an offensive position. If you like sports, this should be very helpful for you. Look at verse 27 again. So whether I come or an absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So defenses, if you think of sports, defensive, you're waiting, right? You're not charging. You're waiting for the ball. You're guarding the hoop, right? You're guarding the goal. You're standing firm. That's what Paul says here, right? The Philippians were to co- collectively stand firm. To, this is a, it's a military term. Think of like trench warfare. They stand firm, right? We're in the trench. We're going to face whoever comes. We're going to face this together, brothers. Right? That, that's what they're talking about here. We're planted in the ground. And if you remember, who were the first converts in Philippi? Do you remember who they were? They were quite the odd bunch. Do you recall? It was Lydia, who was the wealthy woman, right? You have a demonic slave girl who was converted. They have a, a Philippian jailer who's probably very, very rough and dangerous. And that's your church plant. Good luck. Go. Go plant. I mean, that's a, that's a train wreck, right? That's, that's a, those are all different people, right? <laughs> Nevertheless, they must all stand firm in one spirit, right? And this oneness only happens in a Christian community because the, the spirit makes us one spirit with him, right? So we stand firm not on changing tides of opinion or whims. It's on Christ, the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. You guys know this. There's a verse in the Bible where Jesus quotes Abraham Lincoln, and he says this, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. For some of you, that joke will maybe land better tomorrow morning. We realize I just said Jesus quoted Abraham Lincoln, but you'll get it tomorrow, okay? Matthew 12, 25. It's very clear, friends, that if you don't stand for something, Jesus says, you'll fall for anything. It's just crystal clear. So as believers... Our unity and ground to stand firm has been bought by Jesus. It's blood-stained ground, right? It's not, oh, we just, we make it up. We gather on blood-stained ground. It's his word we cling to, his spirit we are bound to. And praise God, right? So standing firm together is the one thing that a church can do that the world has no business doing. They have no clue what unity looks like. I mean, I think we talk about all the time how the world is just, Jacked up, bipartisan, bipartisan. I mean, even that is bipartisan. That's bipartisan. I mean, just everything just divided. The church is the only place where unity is even possible. It's only possible as Christians. Because we are marked out people of God. I, I wonder if you, if you recognize this picture. I want you for a minute to picture what heaven's going to be like. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, you get a really good picture of what heaven's going to look like. And I hope you understand where I'm going here. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 says this. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So you have people from every country, language, nation, imaginable, all clothed in the same right, white righteousness, all shouting the same thing. 
What I want you to hear is this. In heaven, you will be surrounded with people who are nothing like you. They will be actually utterly way different than you. Different language, different skin color, different hobbies, different denominations, different interests, different jobs, different families, different views on Christian liberties. All different, right? And in heaven are those differences, and hear me carefully here, are all those differences in heaven erased? No, right? He's still from there. I'm still from here, right? They're not erased. They're actually visibly seen. John tells us we, we can see where they're from. They're not from me. Different place, right? That's done as a means to magnify and increase the glory of Christ. What's removed in heaven primarily? Well, your sin, right? So the problem is not having differences. It's your sin. That's the problem, right? So therefore, standing firm, friends, doesn't mean that we pretend we don't disagree on stuff. Rather, it means that what we agree on transcends earth. It goes beyond. It's eternal. Let me read Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Paul writes this. Here, in the gospel, in Christ, here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So... It's not that our differences go away. It's that we have a better union on something that matters more than what we disagree on, right? And the Bible calls for unity, not uniformity, which means you, you, you don't have to be like me. You just got to be like Christ. And I'll do that too. Do you catch that? It's a big difference, right? Maybe, maybe put it in a positive light. The gospel doesn't remove our differences. It replaces our desires. If my desire is to honor Christ and your desire is to honor Christ, we're good to go. Come what may, we'll stand defensively opposing. Does that make sense? Standing firm. Second stance, so as defensive, now we do have an offensive. Look at verse 27 again. 27 is like the longest verse in the whole section. That's why we're going so slow. Second stance, offensive. In one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So, Here's how we stand, and now Paul says, this is how you move forward. As Christians, you don't just stand, you also march forward. The gospel moves us onward. The Philippians have a shared interest, right, in the faith of the gospel. It moves them forward. So again, picture like, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie like Gladiator. It's like the best movie outside, maybe like Tombstone. It's like the best movie ever made. And when they stand with shields, shield, 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 right, they stand from, they march forward with their shields drawn, right? They're not going to get an arrow, Right? They're all standing firm, marching side by side, together, going forward for the faith of what Caesar says to do. Well, Paul says we should be lockstep, side by side, shields ready, swords drawn for the gospel. That's what we're called to do. We march to the beat of the Father's heart for his son. It's for the Lamb, right? That's what we go. We go for Christ alone. That's what we honor Christ for, right? Nothing else. And Paul says it requires us here to have one mind. Now, I'm going to go on a story here. I'm sure we can all, I hope you chuckle because we've all heard this story. We've all heard the stories where churches split over the color of the what? We all know it, right? The carpet. Why? And we could think, are you being serious? And we just chuckle. We think, that's just insanity. But it actually happened. Do you know why that is? It's because someone held the color carpet as more precious in their mind than what Christ can do. 
What's better is I have this carpet. I don't care what you think. <laughs> I want this carpet. So if anything captivates us away from Christ and impedes our marching, put it to death. That's what Paul is saying. We got, we got to have one mind on the same thing. It has to be Christ. If it causes us to wander, it will cause us to waver. It's just really simple, right? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, Paul calls us soldiers and says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So we exist here to please Christ. And if we please Christ together, nothing to worry about. Number three, we have a heavenly courage. Look at verse 28. And Paul has two descriptions of your courage. First description is the destruction of your opponents. Verse 28 is very, very intense. I want you to hear it. And not frightened. So standing firm, striving side by side, right? Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. So the Philippians were expected to expect opposition. Public faithfulness as a Christian will always gather public enemies. Every time. Just no exceptions, right? And we know that. Think of the Philippian Christians. They're thinking, okay, well, as Christians... Here's what we're going to do. We're going to be good employees at our work. We're going to love women and children. We're going to honor our father and our mother. We're not going to lie. We're going to be faithful to our family. And we're going to tell people about the gospel. Things should go well. And we think, yeah, it kind of sounds like it, right? But that always brings opposition. Even that brings opposition, right? If Christian history tells us anything, it's that the world hates a pure gospel. They want it to be different. It can't be Christ alone. It has to be Christ and somebody else. It can't just be the Bible. It has to be the Bible and something else. It can't just be marriage between them. It has to be marriage. It has to be defined the way we want it to be defined. It just cannot be the way it's supposed to be. As Christians, we understand that to live purely on life, to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us, to keep ourselves unstained from the world, those are all good things to do, right? Can we agree on that? You should be doing those things. Then we have verses like this, 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Do not be, Paul says here in Philippians, do not be frightened by your opponents. If the Lord is on our side, whom shall you fear? If God is for us, who can be against us? But here's what happens, and I'll speak from um, experience here. What tends to happen is if you live as a Christian at work or on the street or in a restaurant, you make a Christian comment, you do Christian things, whatever, and you get backfire from it. You get ridicule, name call, a sneer, a pfft, you know, whatever, pick on you, what, big or small, whatever. What we automatically think is, well, I guess I shouldn't have done anything because they got offended. I shouldn't have done that. We, right? We all do. Well, I don't want to offend anybody. So we back off. We just we back off the gospel. I don't want to be a Christian that obnoxiously. I'll just be really quiet. I won't say it loud. I'll just whisper. Because we don't want to offend. But that's not why you're being attacked. It's not because it's allowed. It's because you're a believer. You could whisper it. It's not going to be good enough. You could tone it down. It's not going to be good enough. Do you understand that? And this is why. Now, we don't go into the world hoping to offend. Who can I set off at the restaurant today? 
that waiter, right? We're not hoping to do that, right? That's not our desire here. But why does that happen? Jesus tells us very simply in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. This is what being a Christian does to non-Christians. This is just, so if you didn't know that this morning, here's what you should know. John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light. Lest his work should be exposed. So maybe put it in a, in a, a, a simple way. As a Christian, the way that you live in the world... You are like the world's conscience. When they see you, they know, I should be acting like that guy. And so your living irks them. <clears throat> I can't stand that faithful family. <laughs> I can't stand that nice Christian. Because I, I'm not that way. I should be like that. So what do they do? Well, I guess I better go attack them then. Right? It provokes them, right? Because they know their deeds are evil. It exposes their sin, Right? Paul says here in Philippians, it's a sign to them, ironically, of their destruction. Meaning, people who oppose Christianity, they know they're opposing it. They know it's suicide. They'll deny it. They know it's satanic. They'll know that people who die in unbelief really do go to hell. That they are destroyed. It really does happen. So friends, rest assured that all opposition to the gospel will not go unnoticed. God records everything. It will not go unpunished. Romans 12, 19, you probably all know this verse by heart. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, right? Don't be frightened by your opponents. Just be faithful. Let the Lord handle your battle. The second description is the salvation of God's people. So you have the destruction of God's enemies, of God's opponents. Now you have the salvation of God's people. Look at verse 28. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but to clear sign to them of your salvation and that from God. So imagine if all the Philippians here live boldly, clearly, and faithfully in the world. That would turn the world upside down. The book of Acts of the, the disciples turned the whole world upside down. I think it's worth noting that all of us, at least especially me, I think especially you as well, when Christians do bold, courageous things in public, does it encourage you? Man, good job, brother. So Kelly and I just saw a guy this last week that was open air preaching downtown. And I told him, thank you. Thank you for preaching. He, he was very kind. He wasn't a jerk. He was preaching very well. And we said, brother, thank you for being out there and doing that. I'm encouraged by that. It makes you think, man, I, I could do more witnessing. I shouldn't be so scared. He can do it, right? Because courageous, it, courage is contagious, right? So living a clear sign of Christianity, being a worthy citizen is a clear sign of your salvation that God has secured you. And those who stand with the Lord should not tremble before mere men. Let me read you a good verse. Isaiah 51, verse 12. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? The son of man who is made like grass. Um, I don't know if you guys ever walk outside and get... Does anybody here walk outside and get scared of their lawn? The grass! It's grass, right? The Bible just compared the worst people in the world to be like grass. Are you scared of grass? When Kelly, when Kelly was a little kid, she was scared of leaves. But not grass, apparently. Are you guys scared of grass? 
No. Then why are you scared of unbelievers? I'm with you. I comfort you. Don't be scared. Right? That's what we're, we're, we're encouraged by that. This morning I heard a story. This morning, this week I heard a story about persecution. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, it says this, that all, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I don't think many of us in this room have probably been persecuted. And I mean from name-calling to getting beat up. Okay, I'm, So if you have been, praise God. Many of us probably haven't been. When I first moved from Southern California uh, to Southern Illinois, I was asked a lot, you're not from here, are you? No, friend, I am definitely not, right? The corn I see is not usually in, in, in the field. It's usually in the store. I see orchards and orange tree. I don't see corn like it's all in Illinois. And when I would visit my family in California, what I was always told was this. You know, your accent's changed quite a bit. You sound like a redneck now. Not like a Californian, I would say, oh, man, really? Changed? I feel the same, right? Friend, as Christians, does your accent change as you live in the world? Does your Christianity change? Is it, is it enveloped? Is it changed and morphed by the culture? I heard a pastor say once that the problem with Christians today is that we're not being persecuted anymore. And I think that's pretty good. I heard a story this week of talking about the USSR and Christianity in Russia years and years ago. And, the, and when the Berlin Wall was torn down, and these Christians were telling a story about how when the wall was torn down, they were very sad. You think, it's supposed to be a good thing? Like, it's done. Russia will be now be less communist. They'll be free. Freer. They'll be better, right? Well, the Christians were sad. Because in communist-ruled Russia... Christianity was either to be regulated by the state, means you submit your church to the state and they know everything you're doing, or you don't do that and you meet secretly underground. What do you think good Christians like to do? Like to meet secretly, right? I'm not going to have the state tell me how to worship. I'm going to do however I want. How the Bible says, right? They were sad because they knew that they would rather be captured by the KGB and be persecuted than have, Christ- than have the, the lid be lifted and have Christianity just get lukewarm. They hated that. They knew if there's no persecution, Christianity will just get milk. It will just be watery. And we don't want that. And they were all bummed out by that. Because they knew that persecution often removes false believers. It purifies the church. It makes doctrine secure. And on and on and on. So friends, could it be that a lack of persecution in America is actually a bad sign for Christianity? Don't be wrong. I like not having people attack me. I like that. But could it be that because we don't frighten anything, it's because our testimony as believers has been watered down? Four and lastly, our heavenly calling. This is very brief. This is probably the most profound verses in the whole section. Verse 29. There's two gifts that you receive as a Christian. Number one, the gift of faith. Look at verse 29. It has, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So the Philippians were granted for the sake of Christ to believe in him. That verse should kind of make you stagger if you're a Christian in America, just hearing that. Paul just said, faith that you had to believe in Christ, that's a gift. Faith does not come from you. You didn't muster it up. 
the gift. Faith does not originate with man, but it originates with God. None of us would, would have believed upon Christ apart from God. If it had not been for the Lord, we would have been just like our opponents. And Paul is certain then that facing opposition, being a believer, is a gift from the Lord. Faith is divinely initiated, divinely given. Which makes sense. Love for God must only come from God. We can't just create it here. It has to come from God. God causes the new birth. He grants us faith and repentance. Then we believe upon Christ. It's very simple. So friends, let me ask you a question. This is a, a, if you remember anything, I want you to think about this for the the rest of the morning, probably the rest of the week. Would you live differently if you believe that even your faith to be a Christian was a gift? That God chose you to grant faith to, to believe in Christ in the world. Would you, would you live a, little, a bit differently if that was true? We should just be floored to the ground. God did not grant us faith because one day he saw we would believe. Rather, God granted us faith because if we, he didn't, none of us would believe. John chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 2, Acts chapter 13. This goes on and on and on. We are dead apart from Christ. We are alienated. We are spiritually hostile. We have a heart of stone that God gives a heart of flesh and makes us alive. And it was granted for the sake of Christ. I think we, we all know the, the, the famous words of that parable. Well done, good and faithful what? Servant, right? And it's all about the, uh, the stewards who get the gifts, right? And they do good things with them. Well, one guy just puts it in the ground and goes, I'll just plant it. Well, that was helpful, right? I think your faith is one of those gifts that you're granted. How are you using your faith? Are you making much of Christ? And for those who have no faith, who stand helpless as an unbeliever, we say, cry out to God for faith, and he will grant it to you. Run to him. He will give it to you freely, right? That's what we say. Secondly and lastly, Paul has a history of conflict. He says that suffering is also a gift. I could go on and on here, but time is not on my side. Acts chapter 5, verse 41 says the, the, the apostles left the presence of the council, rejoicing they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It's in Revelation 6 where we see the martyrs have a special place. So to suffer for Christ is a gift. Maybe a gift you want to return at the store, but it is a gift. Belief and suffering are gifts of Christ. Friends, let me add with with a small note here, and then I'm going to read you one portion from Pilgrim's Progress. Whether big or small, death or tears, torture or ridicule, may God grant us worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. Persecution is willed by evil men. What they mean for evil, God means for what? For good, right? It's a gift. So if you know... Faithful and Christian have just been attacked or they've been looked at and gawked at in this city in Vanity Fair. And they are thrown before a council, a false court. It's a joke. They have all these false witnesses. They slander, they lie, they persecute. And in the end, uh, Faithful is asked to stand testimony and he defends himself. And this is what happens. And so they did. Faithful was condemned and was taken to a place where he was put to the most cruel death they could invent. 
First they scourged him, then they beat him, then they lanced him his flesh with knives. After that, they stoned him with stones and pierced him with their swords. Last of all, they burned him to ashes at the stake. This is how faithful came to his end. Now I saw my dream there stood behind this brutal multitude, a chariot and a couple of horses waiting for faithful. So as soon as his adversaries had killed him, he was taken into it and was immediately carried up through the clouds with the sound of trumpets, heading straight away to the celestial gate. So suffering, and in this he tells how they were both waiting. Who's it going to be? I hope it's you. I hope it's me. Like they were waiting to be martyred for Christ. So friends, this week, are you living as a citizen of Christ or a citizen of the world? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Let's pray.